Aaron and I want to start with a really big, heartfelt first bite thank you. We have been so encouraged by your kind word, your messages, your glowing reviews of First Bite. This has been a labor of love for the last year and a half, and we we are grateful for y'all being on the First Bite journey with us and supporting us because we I mean, we work full time and this is this is a full time gig on top of it. And we do it with joy because we understand that the world of early intervention pediatrics needs evidence in it. So we sweet talked the folks with speechtherapypd.com. And as a thank you giveaway, we have come up with a, a, a free pod course subscription. So once we hit 130 iTunes written reviews, we're going to pull another name out of the hat, probably with the assistance of an ever so handsome goose and a bear. And that person will get a free PodCore subscription. So over 175 hours of continuing ed plus 19 new continuing hours each month. And there's a new episode every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, every other Thursday, and the short course, nine series long, all things ethics with Elise. And that's our way of giving back. So thank you. So please keep the reviews coming. We only have a few more to go, but once we hit 130, then we will pull that name out of a hat. Happy 2020. Thank you for joining us on the journey. And Seriously, y'all rock. Thank you. Hey, so by now, I'm hoping that you've heard about the brand new PodCore subscription that Speech Therapy PD has rolled out. For $79 a month, you get over 175 hours of ASHA continuing education with 19 new episodes a month. That's fantastic. Well, they want to make sure that you also know we have a brand new coupon code. So the coupon code is F as in first, B as in bite, followed by the number 20, FB20. And that brand new coupon code will give you $20 off the PodCore subscription. So you get 175 hours of continuing ed plus an average of 19 new hours a month, all for $59 a year. And we cover everything from early intervention to schools to adults to ethics. So be sure to type in F as in first, B as in bite, and then the number's 20. Enjoy your coupon, or as my kin folks say, enjoy that coupon. Hey there, listener. This is Dr. Dakota Sharp, audiologist, clinical assistant professor, and lifelong learner, inviting you to join me on an exciting new podcasting journey known as On the Ear. As you know, audiology is ever-evolving, so it's critical as professionals that we learn and grow as well. Every other Thursday, On the Ear will be interviewing a variety of clinicians and researchers spanning a wide range of hearing and communication topics. From pediatrics to geriatrics, cochlear implants to vestibular, speech to hearing, and everything in between, this podcast will provide exciting insights that you can use in your clinical practice. Each episode of On the Ear is available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs when you complete the accompanying pod course through speechtherapypd.com. Hi folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by speechtherapypd.com. 
I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and I guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields, or as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy, joy, and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. So today's episode falls in all the fabulous categories of fun and functional, and I am excited to be collaborating with an audiologist. It's been way too long since we hosted our sister profession. And bonus points, y'all, our guest today is also a fellow, fellow JMU Duke dog. So, woohoo! Okay, um, so our guest is Dr. Dakota Sharp. And fun fact, We've never really actually met before. I mean, like we kind of have, like we've run into each other at, um, uh, at, at a couple of like USC events, but like never really met. Um, here's what I know about him. He has a beautiful wife, a sweet little baby boy at home. And I know that he is the clinical assistant professor and audiologist at the University of South Carolina. So I bet you're wondering how in the world did we get him on here today? Easy peasy. He came highly recommended from our social media guru, Miss Annalisa, who like begged and encouraged her professor at the end of his class one night to think about doing an episode. And then our lovely Mernie Mern, y'all, she's the one that did the book cover for my book, Chasing the Swallow, and she's like super talented. So thank you, Mernie Mern. Uh, she also had Dr. Dakota as a professor, and she recommended the topic of cochlear implants, which is something that we've never covered on here before. And Dr. Dakota, who's apparently a super trooper to put up with all of our shenanigans and me delaying the podcast by recording by a week because he just got stung by a bee and he has a tendency to swell up. Um, he was game on. So, <laughs> so hi, Doc. Welcome. Thank you for coming on. I'm super excited to have you on. And I have like so many questions. Some of them are kind of embarrassingly basic as like, 
can someone wash their hair or take a shower if they have implants? And can they get their hair colored? And does a hair blow dryer interfere with the implant? And I promise that not all of my questions are hair related, but the pandemic left me with lots of roots showing and it made me wonder about folks in the same boats that had had implants. So yay, welcome and hi. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me, Michelle. My, this podcast comes highly recommended by my students. So I gave a few few episodes a listen and I will admit I have no idea really what's being talked about for the most part, but it's fun. It's interesting. So I'm thinking I did a few listening of things that don't really make sense. Now it's my turn to provide something that doesn't make sense to my speech friends, but hopefully yes. it makes a little bit more sense. Yes. we Honestly, we basically all of the episodes follow whatever little bit of ADD or ADHD that I have <laughs> going on. But like, and so like we cover all the topics, AAC, clinical supervision, a lot of dysphagia, but there we are. So, okay. Now you're a JMU Duke dog. How in the world did you go from beautiful Virginia to like hot, humid, muggy, you're going to melt going outside South Carolina? That is a great question. I w I'm originally from Richmond, Virginia, um, went up to JMU for undergrad, and then I stuck around for my AUD. Um, your final year of your AUD program is uh, like an externship year, clinical placement for a full year at a site where you're basically just working for little to no money for that year. Um, and I did mine with Children's Healthcare of Atlanta down in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, and my wife's parents originally from the Virginia Beach area had moved to Lexington, South Carolina about two years before that. And so we were pregnant, I was about to graduate and we started looking and we said, it might be a good idea to be kind of close to family. So we were looking around in the Columbia area and I just happened to find what is my dream job. And I've been there ever since. Nice. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I grew up just outside of Fredericksburg, like an hour North of you. And Very cool. um, I did undergrad over at ODU and then transferred to JMU for grad school. So like we've like way overlapped. This is delightful. Now is your wife a speech pathologist? Cause I like, I'm assuming that she's an SLP because you're an audiologist, but like watch her not be an SLP. <laughs> now that would be the dream team. We would have to open some kind of a private practice. No, she's actually, she's actually currently a stay at home mom with our seven month old. Um, but she is trained uh, as a first grade teacher. So she spent a year teaching in China and then several years teaching in public school, first grade. Oh, my stars. Okay. Well, sidebar conversation. My boys go to the Mandarin Immersion Program over in Lexington. She should look at that. It's, it's kind so of really cool. cool. We're, re we're in Columbia, so we're a little jealous about that Mandarin Immersion Program because we're, yes. we're hopefully going to have our own version of that at home, but we'll see. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I highly recommend it. And you can... Um, so, y'all, if you are ever around charter schools, little known fact, you don't have to necessarily be zoned for the charter school Um like zoned in that district. So hint, 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 you don't have to be zoned. So, that is yeah, good yeah. info. That is really yeah. good info. Yes, yes, yes. I'm quite delighted. Okay. Um. All right. So we have so much to cover and like, I'm going to be honest, I don't really know how to pronounce some of these words. That I'm that's, gonna that's okay. And I, I think, you know what, if the topic remains mostly about hair, it remains about hair, you know, and we just can't, <laughs> that's, it's out of our control. If we have to talk about hair, that's okay. I, I, I really was super curious. I mean, like I get really good ideas when I'm washing my hair and I was like, well, could they get electrocuted? What happens? Or would it short fry out? Like, I don't know the answer to these questions. And I am embarrassed by saying that, but I was like, you know, there's a lot of other people that don't know that, that are way more embarrassed than I am, like self-deprecating humor. I excel at this. 
Okay. Totally. So why don't why don't we transition to like how they work? Because I think that'll give you a good basis, and then I'll maybe throw in some hair facts as well. Okay, um, beautiful. So but I also want to know how it goes for compared to the other ones too. So when you're giving us the lowdown on that one, can you compare it to the other ones too? Sure, like different hearing devices. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. So when it comes to hearing loss, we have you can think like two big categories for treating it. We can have a surgical device, um, or we can have you know a non-surgical device. So non-surgical are going to be devices that are worn on the ear. Think like a traditional hearing aid. Um, a cross hearing aid is some, something someone might wear if they have one ear with no hearing at all and essentially normal hearing on the other side. It looks just like a hearing aid. These are temporary. You can get a new one. Uh, you can stop wearing it if you want to. Um, they're non-surgical. They're not permanent, right? But then we also have this. Sorry, Wait, go ahead. I've never heard of a cross hearing aid. So okay. you have one ear that is it congenital hearing loss or like acquired hearing loss? Uh, it could be either one. I would say a, so. Yeah, definitely could be either one. But typically, one ear is going to be completely profound hearing loss in that ear, right? Like a hearing aid really wouldn't provide any benefit because their thresholds are so high. So instead of making sounds louder on that side, instead, a transmitter or a microphone is taking in sound. It looks just like a hearing aid on that ear. And then it's actually transmitting the, the signal from that ear to a device on the opposite side where the person might have normal or near normal hearing and then just giving them sound that way. So um, it it's kind of a, a good option for people who are having to always turn, you know, talk to me on my good side. Let me hear you on my good side. They're always having to turn that way. Oh my God, way. that's my husband. <laughs> oh, no, I'm serious. He was um, whatever he did in the army that he doesn't talk about from shooting. Um, oh, okay. And so like when we go to dinner parties or in public, I have to sit on his um, on his good side uh, because if I sit on his right side, eh, he needs help floating a conversation. Okay. Now I know what a cross means. Yes. So the cross, by the way, cross stands for contralateral routing of signal. So we're sending the signal to the opposite ear. Okay. Okay. All right, cool. All right. Now that, now that I'm up to speed on the cross. Okay. So, and then you were talking about like the regular hearing aid and there's different types, right? Like different shape sizes locations within the ear for like Absol what yeah, we think absolutely yeah absolutely the most traditional one you would see with kids is um a bte a behind the ear hearing aid where you have an ear mold in the ear that can be fun and glittery and colorful um, and that's actually going to change as the child gets older their ear grows really fast so we don't want to have to replace the hearing aid every time the child grows a little bit so they have a hearing aid that you know is pretty much stays the same. And then their ear mold changes. We update their ear mold every few months or every year or so um, to fit their ear. There's other, there's probably the most popular type of hearing aid with adults is a receiver in canal. So it sort of looks like a BTE hearing aid, but rather than there being an ear mold, there's a small little tiny rubber piece called a dome. Um, and the speaker box goes down inside the ear canal and the hearing aid's very discreet. It's kind of hidden behind the ear. Those are a lot more delicate though. So um, we might save the, we might save those for when the kid hits, you know, maybe 12, 13, a little bit more responsible, not going to break it, throw it around. Um, and they want something a little more discreet. Uh, whereas a BTE is going to be much more robust, um, and able to be chewed up and run over and those <laughs> kinds of things. Um, there's also custom hearing aids. Those are the ones that sort of look, I think the best example is like a chewed up piece of gum that maybe you've seen your grandma or grandpa have. And those are really popular for a long time. But the problem with a custom device is, if it falls out of the ear, if it breaks, it's not so easy to fix that. They kind of have to replace the entire thing because the entire hearing aid itself is custom. Whereas the receiver and canal, it's just a little rubber dome in the ear, much less like that's much easier to fix that kind of thing. How, okay, this is not one of our pre-discussed questions, but how often does insurance cover 
hearing aids. Like I've seen a lot of the stuff that Ash is doing, like different states will cover more funding. Other states, there's some out-of-pocket expense. Is it really a state-by-state Medicaid situation or is it... So yeah, that's a really good question. That's probably like the biggest battle right now in the world of audiology is getting some kind of funding for patients for hearing aids. Um, For for children with Medicaid, hearing aids are covered typically for the most part, Um, but most private insurances don't cover hearing aids. There are bills that are being passed. One just passed in Georgia. um, One is passed in Virginia. They're sort of popping up all over the state's Um, requiring that private insurances um, pay the cost of hearing aids for children under 18. South Carolina actually has a bill that is kind of got stuck on the floor this past session, but is hopefully moving forward within the next year or so um, to to require insurance companies to provide for hearing aids for children. But for adults, there's no options like that. It's almost always out of pocket. Do you know our sweet friend, Adrian Davis, who is the VP of Governmental Affairs? For Skisha, if you do not, um, if you're in South Carolina, y'all, Adrian Davis is an amazing advocate. Um, Dakota, I'm going to do you a solid and do an introduction between the two of y'all because um, that's something that, y'all, this is what your state association does. How cool is that? Your state association advocates because it's speech pathology and audiology and what's best for the patients, the students, and your colleagues in the state. So um, I will do an intro between y'all because that's necessary. So that'd be perfect. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. All right. Um, okay. So I have had, I've, um, I have a couple of children with hearing loss, but normally I get called into honestly, um, it's normally conjunction with like a cleft or a cleft palate. So I get called in to treat the oropharyngeal dysphagia, um, with the feeding aversions and there's some excellent, and this was new to me, AVT or LISL therapist or um, SLPs that specifically train for hearing loss that I honestly wasn't really exposed to that until I moved to South Carolina. And a lot of those colleagues handle the speech-related hearing loss. Um, uh, but um, I have had the kiddos that have pulled them out and I'm like, great, we're working on feeding therapy and you won't try the food, but we're going to eat our hearing aids. So like partial win because it is oral exploration. So I'm like super excited about the oral exploration. Not so happy when they consume part of their hearing aid. So like, is there like a cap? Like, do they normally only cover like one hearing aid a year or it, is there, is there a trend with that's that? That's a good question. You know? Usually, usually there's a warranty on the hearing aids that's for kids, usually three to five years and they'll replace it. They'll, they'll fix it if it breaks and they'll replace it once if it's, you know, damaged beyond repair. And the, for the pediatric hearing aids, they're pretty generous with what is beyond repair. I've seen one that was like, it looked like it had exploded and they still pieced it back together and kept it within warranty. So they're pretty good about that for the most part. And they know kids are going to chew on these for the most part. Most hearing aids um, nowadays are chargeable, meaning there's no loose battery for a baby to swallow accidentally, um, which is really dangerous for them. Um, so yeah, it, I think it's to be expected. And that's that's the worst part. With kids, it's expected that you know they're going to lick their ear mold, they're going to chew their hearing aid. It's not so cute when you see an older adult do it. They do the old lick and stick. They say, what? It gets it in there better. Yeah, yeah. Nope. I've seen that quite a few times. Oh my God. That's so gross. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's like that's the equivalent to me of somebody taking their contact out because i wear contacts spitting on it getting the dirt off and putting it back in their eye i'm like no 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 yeah no that's this is how we get pink eye people (laughs) okay all right so behind the um behind the ear hearing aid okay now what's up 
what did you explain the Baja? I got so excited about the fact that insurance is starting to cover this and private insurance is covering it. But yes, what, what, so that's the- that's a good transition to like the surgical side of things. So those are both again non-surgical options, um, whereas a Baja and a cochlear implant are both going to be surgical. So well, not all Bajas are surgical. So I'll get into that real quick. So we have to differentiate here based on the type of hearing loss. So I want to take you back to your audiology class, your audiology anatomy, where we've got the outer and middle ear and we've got the inner ear, the cochlea. So when the hearing loss is primarily coming from a problem in the outer and middle ear, typically that's going to be a conductive hearing loss. Maybe the cochlea is working just fine. And these are the kiddos who might have something, you know, like cleft palate, um, have chronic uh, middle ear infections, might have um, uh, perforation in the eardrum, all kinds of outer and middle ear problems. Or they or they might have microtia or anosia, meaning their outer and middle, or sorry, their outer ear or their um, pinna is just not there at all or wasn't developed properly. So um, in those situations, the cochlea on the inside is working fine. We just have to find a way to get sound to it. Um, and if you've ever taken a tuning fork, which maybe you've never done this, I can't think of a situation where you would have, um, but maybe you've taken a tuning fork and you've kind of pushed it against the back of your ear, or um, maybe you have, I'm trying to think, you've been to a concert that was so loud you can kind of hear it in your teeth. I've heard people describe that before too. Sound can travel through the bones in your skull to your cochlea because it's housed in bone. Um, and so if the sound is able to travel through the bone to the cochlea, we can stimulate the cochlea just as if we were hearing the sound normally. So a bone anchored hearing aid for a really little one, um, think less than five years old, is going to be on a soft headband with a sound processor that sound processor that sort of looks like a hearing aid, just a little bit bigger, um, that snaps into the headband and then is sort of pushed pretty firmly against the mastoid bone, that kind of knobby bone right behind your ear. Um, We push up against that really tight and then the bone anchored hearing aid takes sound in, converts it to these mechanical vibrations that kind of beat against the skull there and then provide the child with sound. As they get older, they can have a surgical option where they put sort of a titanium screw that integrates into the bone of the mastoid there behind the ear. Um, There's actually I mean, new developments in the world of Baja all the time. Um, now they're more magnetic. There's a version called the Ad Here that's essentially just a sticker that's stuck behind there on the mastoid bone. That way there's no um, permanent screw and it can be taken on and off pretty easily. Um, so that's a that's a world of audiology that's growing pretty rapidly, the world of Baja, but that's going to be for more conductive losses. It's amazing. Okay, so... Um, I think one of the times that we ran into each other was I was actually bringing Bear up there. My my littlest one, we had labor stopped 14 times to keep me pregnant with him. He finally came at week 35, came out crooked with a crooked head, all the things. Um, and he basically didn't hear for like two years of his life and had a lot of surgeries. And so um, eventually after we got all the fluid out of his head, um, his hearing came back and your colleagues tested the daylights out of Serbu. (laughs) (laughs) But this is just really cool to me. And, And he's still in our tick therapy because of, I mean, he didn't talk. His first sentence was colorful because he is his mother's child. But, um, <laughs> but uh, it, I mean, it, so I've been through the conductive hearing loss as a mom and as an SLP. And it's, um, it's been a very interesting walk. 
and yeah, very, it can very be stressful troubling. because it, especially it can be fluctuating. And so you never know, are, are they getting a clear signal today or is it not so good? I mean, there are some children who have, you know, a permanent conductive loss, something like microtia or anosia, or, you know, some kind of middle ear bone abnormality. But when it's something that fluctuates like fluid or, I mean, all these conditions that it's just so hard to know what's going on and when they're getting a good signal. Um, and so that's why Baja is good. We have, um, I can think of a, a patient that I've had before. He had Down syndrome. And so his outer ear was was just small and it was kind of cup shaped. And so a regular ear mold just wouldn't fit in there. So we had to resort to a Baja in his situation because we just had to get him sound. And he, his problem was honestly chronic wax that would accumulate in his ear canal and plug up the hearing aid. So Because it couldn't um, go anywhere. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's yes. Okay. All right. So, and you said some of them are surgical because of the titanium screw implant. And, but cochlear implants are always surgical options. Exactly. So now we have to think that we're switching to the type from conductive to sensory neural. Now the problem isn't the outer and middle ear, but the cochlea itself. Um, so I'll, I'll do a quick little recap of anatomy. I'll make it like 30 seconds. Okay. So you're too fine, hon. This is great. <laughs> so just remember sound comes in your, into your uh, outer ear, travels down the ear canal, hits the eardrum, shakes the teeny little bones of the middle ear. And the last little bone, um, knocks against, against essentially the entrance to the cochlea. And then this wave kind of travels through the cochlea, exciting the hair cells of your inner ear. So you have outer hair cells that are responsible for amplifying that signal a little bit. And you have inner hair cells that are responsible for the sensory input that gets sent to the nerve and then to the brain to say, hey, I heard a sound. So let's say your outer and middle ear are working fine, no fluid, no problems with your eardrum, no problems with your middle ear space. But when that sound gets into your inner ear, that's when things go wrong. So, um, Sensory neural hearing loss that can be congenital, um, uh, that can be from you know uh, acquired hearing loss from noise exposure, that can be from chemotherapy. Um, I mean, there are so there's a myriad of things that can Wait, go wrong. Chemotherapy can cause hearing loss. Oh, definitely. Yeah, that's a that's a really it, it depends on the drug that's used, um, but any kind of cisplatin for chemotherapy, which is a really common option. So any um, anyone who undergoes chemotherapy for depending on the drug and for an extended period of time, will often be monitored over the course of their treatment to see if there's a change in their hearing. Okay. I'm just wondering, what if a patient's mother had chemotherapy during prior to the pregnancy and then subsequently has a child with hearing loss? Is there any correlation there? I would assume if they had chemotherapy while they were pregnant that they would be more likely, but I can't, I, I'm not sure because there is a delayed onset sometimes with hearing loss with cisplatin related hearing loss. So I don't know about that, but that would be something interesting to look into. Okay. If anybody has any research articles on that, like that's just really curious because I know that there's a correlation between um, uh, the anti-nausea medication and cardiacs and clefts. Um, it's not Zofran. Zofran's the antidepressant. Zoloft. I don't know. Whichever one it is that makes you less vomitous when you're pregnant. And they actually um, had to change the format of the medication because it was um, basically, if it started too early, it was causing clefts. So that just kind of made me wonder. I'm sorry. Squirrel. Professional no, no, discussion. No, 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 <laughs> so if the hearing loss is sensory neural, and depending on the severity, we would start with a hearing aid, right? So let's... 
I'm just going to make a, I'm going to come up with a scenario. There's a baby born, they fail their newborn hearing screening, they get an ABR and their thresholds are in the moderate to severe hearing loss range. So we would start with a hearing aid, right? Um, and for a lot of people with sensory neural hearing loss, for most people with sensory neural hearing loss, a hearing aid is all they need. Um, but for people who have these more severe hearing losses, we're thinking severe to profound, um, more things like deafness in general, that's when a cochlear implant is going to come into play because uh, a hearing aid can make sounds louder. Um, but once that sound gets into the cochlea, if the inner hair cells and the outer hair cells are damaged so much, it's not going to be really a clear enough signal um, and it's not going to be audible or understandable to the person anymore. And that's when we need to start thinking of kind of a completely different way of hearing that's not like a hearing aid at all. We're going to use electrical stimulation directly to the auditory nerve. Okay. How early can they get that? That's a good question. So just in terms of like, and that's, that's something that's changing. So for, in terms of candidacy, historically, it's just been profound hearing loss. You're at the point where a hearing aid can't really go loud enough to help you. So it's time to transition to a cochlear implant. Um, so up until, you know, I don't even know how many months ago, maybe two or three months ago, um, a child had to be 12 months old and the candidacy requirements where they had to have profound sensory neural hearing loss bilaterally and they had to have um, limited benefit um, wearing binaural hearing aids. So because a child can't really do any testing to tell you, hey, the hearing aids are helping me or no, they're not, it requires a lot of teamwork between the speech pathologist and the audiologist to monitor progress for the child to say, okay, we're not really seeing any speech and language development with the hearing aids on that are fit appropriately. It's time to move forward with a cochlear implant. And so, whereas that was starting at 12 months, that's actually now just been reduced to nine months. And in other countries around the world, they're, they're a lot more lax with it. They are implanting as early as six months. More research is being done to look at even earlier because the earlier we we go in terms of implanting, the less we have to catch up. A child who's born profoundly deaf, the first time we turn on that device, you can think of that as the first time they're listening. Whereas their peers who are already a year old have been listening since the day they came out of the womb. So we listen to learn how to speak. And so they're essentially a year behind everyone else in their listening skills. And so they have to build those listening skills up before they can develop any spoken language skills. So we're a year behind. So the earlier we can move up that hearing age or the first time they hear, the earlier and the less um, behind they're going to be compared to their peers with speech and language. I, I work with an amazing OT who specializes in sensory integration. And I'm just thinking all of the regulation that those little ones that have not been able to hear for the first year are going to need in order to feel regulated and not overwhelmed by all of that sudden influx, like how they're actually processing that sound from a interacting with the world. Absolutely. That's, that That's yeah. such a good point. I'm not sure how many... Um... I feel like there's a different one every week of like a, a baby being activated for the first time with their cochlear implant and you see the big smile and the look to mom and dad and it's like maybe the most heartwarming thing ever. Those videos mm -hmm. are amazing. Um, but honestly, that's like a one in 10 situation, maybe like a one in 20 where it's like a really a lot of times it's, you know, there's crying, there's fear. They don't know what's going on. Um, yeah. When you get that one in 10 happy reaction, it's really, really nice. But it's totally normal for them to be scared and not understand what's going on. It's a yeah. completely new sensation for them. Oh, my stars. OK. All right. Is there any other requirements in order to be a candidate aside from like the new change in the age and having the profound hearing loss are there other 
Are there, are there other spoken requirements or other unspoken requirements? Because it's always the unspoken ones that I find weird. Yeah, that's a good question. So the spoken requirements, in term, and again, it can depend on insurance. It can depend on whether you're following the FDA guidelines or like the Medicare guidelines. Um, for children who are over two years old, they have to have severe to profound sensory neural hearing loss. They have to show this quote unquote limited benefit with binaural amplification. And then they actually, we have a speech test that we can you know, require of a child, um, and it, they score less than 30% than they're a candidate. And for adults, it's even a little bit more lax. It's moderate to profound sensory neural hearing loss with less than 50% in the ear to be implanted in terms of speech and noise testing and less than 60% in the opposite ear. Um, so it gets a little bit more lax as the person gets older, um, just because there's a little bit less risk. Um, but the overarching theme is this limited benefit with binaural amplification, meaning traditional hearing aids are not providing you enough benefit for you to get by with your listening and spoken language. Now, the more like unseen things, so typically a cochlear implant center has a team and that's going to include audiologists and auditory verbal therapists and usually an ENT or an otolaryngologist, um, sometimes a social worker, uh, sometimes depending on the age of the child, maybe their pediatrician um, or a teacher of the deaf or a school audiologist if they're in school. And they're going to assess, I mean, there's a lot of factors here. So I'll get into in a minute. Um, like what the follow-up like programming and all of that looks like. But this is really different from a hearing aid. A hearing aid, if your hearing loss is stable, you can kind of program a, program a hearing aid for that person and be fine for a long time unless your hearing loss changes. And for a lot of people, it doesn't. So if that's the case, you can kind of get by with that for a while. A cochlear implant doesn't work that way at all. Um, and I'll get into like how it works, I guess, in a second. But you have there's a lot of follow-up, especially early on. And there there's a huge commitment to wearing the device. So your hearing aid, let's say you stopped wearing it for a month and a half because you didn't like it anymore. And then you put it back in. The effect is the same. There might be a little bit of an adjustment period, but a cochlear implant it relies on the plasticity of your brain for it to sound normal to you. The first time we turn it on for all, for everyone, children to adults, it does not sound like normal speech. I've heard people describe it as sounding like a robot or a chicken or Mickey Mouse or Donald Duck. It just sounds strange because it's electrical stimulation to the nerve. It's not acoustic input. So it takes time, but almost everyone who gets an implant after you know about six months it starts to sound like normal speech to them. And they, I mean, some people can still notice a difference at that point. Other people say it sounds totally normal to me. So, but the problem is when you take away that stimulation, if you stop wearing the device for an extended period of time, your brain is very plastic and it starts to reorganize. And then when you, it, when you put it on again, it's like starting over. It might sound robotic again. So because of that, and this is a really wraparound way to get back to the question about the unseen things. Um, we have we kind of have to assess: Are they committed to this surgery? Is this is this a family who would would is not motivated enough to really maintain? Because um, do they have established buy-in? I exactly we have we have talked so much in so many different episodes about established buy-in. Yes. Okay. Can, sorry. Mm -hmm. No. No. That's that's fine. So if they have residual hearing, so let's say let's think more of like an adult who can have moderate to profound sensory neural hearing loss, they only have to get less than fifty percent speech understanding. A lot of people spend their whole life with, you know, 50% speech understanding and they're, they'll live with that. They don't think that's too bad. Now, when someone gets a cochlear implant, just the way the surgery is performed, and this is getting better, but historically, when they put that electrode into the cochlea, any residual hearing that person had, so let's say like they can take their hearing aid off and if you kind of shout at them, they can still hear you pretty good. That's gone. 
right? This electrode, when it goes in, it takes away that ability. So when they're not wearing their cochlear implant, there is no sound at all. It's just like lights out. So do you really want to go through with this surgery where you, first of all, it's a surgery. Second of all, it's a very expensive surgery, typically covered by insurance, but it's a big investment from you and you know your insurance company. Third, you're not going to have access to sound anymore. So maybe you're used to being able to hear uh, when the doorbell rings or you're used to hearing a beat on the door or the fire alarm, you might lose that ability. So are you willing to give up those things to commit to this, you know, lifelong appointments? You're married to this device for life because it's surgically implanted in your head, right? Um, so it's they really do have to buy in. And that's one of the things that the cochlear implant team has to sort of discuss and assess when it comes to this, um, you know, this kind of un like there's no strict criteria in terms of candidacy, but it is something that's talked about. Yeah. Cause I've got, I have several children that have multiple diagnoses. I'm thinking of one little guy in particular and he, um, he has the behind the ear hearing aid and, um, it, how did you reference it? The B T E B T E behind the ear. You said it quick, but I got it. Um, and, um, he developed a cyst, and so he has quit wearing it because he has a cyst that rubs against it and he has refused to wear his hearing aid. But I mean, I have another little one who has major impulsivity, um, autism spectrum concerns and has significant hearing loss. And he would not wear his hearing aid, but he would take it out and um, and, 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 and stem on it, basically. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I've wondered for those children, are there other options available but based off of what you're describing, they may not be developmentally appropriate at that point in time and regroup, revisit later on. Okay. Just a thought. for Possibly. Carryover. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Okay. Mm. And another, there was another thing. Shoot. I'm trying to remember we were talking about the BTE. It'll come back to me. <laughs> no, it only comes back to me around two o'clock in the morning. So <laughs> you're totally fine. Okay. All right. So we went through like who's a candidate, but okay. So say they go through and they get approval for candidacy and the, and, and the family's on board or the, um, the patient themselves are on board. Um, and we had uh, Dr. Jason Wigan on, we had um, uh, on a couple of, I believe maybe like last summer. And he shared his story of how he has his cochlear implants, how he got meningitis and then had um, the significant hearing loss. So how he obtained his um, cochlear implants. But um, you're talking about all this programming and what it's like the first time. So what does that look like the, for receiving and programming one? You like say you have, the, wait, how long is the surgery? <laughs> That's a good question. I have so, so many questions. I'm sorry. Yeah, so now this will, this will be the fun part. This is the real like technical stuff. Okay. So, um, so the device itself is, is basically two parts. There's an internal part and an external part. So the internal part consists of a magnet and a receiver stimulator that go under the skin, maybe like two inches or so behind and above the ear. Um, and then there's an electrode lead that extends down and into the cochlea. And depending on the manufacturer, there's three major manufacturers who make cochlear implants. Um, they might have between you know, 16 and 25 electrodes or so um, that are essentially trying to take the place of those hair cells. So um, just like your cochlea is tonotopically organized, that's your word of the day, tonotopic, tonotopically tonotopic. organized. 
Okay. So your cochlea is organized at the very beginning or the highest frequencies, and then it goes gradually lower in frequency as you go up to the apex of the hearing of the cochlea. So the the front I did the not entrance, know that. That's delightful. Yes. Yeah, so Say sound comes again. in tonotopically organized. Tonotopically organized. I'm going to butcher that later when I tell my husband <laughs> about my word of the day, but that's a great word of the day. Okay. So, so sound comes in and the highest frequencies respond first at the entrance to the cochlea. And then that wave that I was talking about travels all the way up and around for the lowest frequencies. So the electrode does the same thing. The first electrode is going to you know, be responsible for stimulating the higher frequencies and the last electrode is responsible for stimulating the lower frequencies. Now the cochlea is about two... 0.75 turns, sort of like a snail shell. I'm sure you've seen that before, that kind mm -hmm. of snail shell mm -hmm. looking cochlea. Mm -hmm. So the problem with a snail shell is that these electrodes have to be, you know, stiff enough to be able to go through and around, but loose enough to not, you know, stab or kink or cause any problems because this is all tissue in there that we don't want to damage too much. And like I said, they lose their residual hearing as surgeons and have gotten better with technique and as electrodes have gotten more refined, there's a little bit less of that residual hearing loss. And that's happening because of essentially trauma to the cochlea that's unavoidable as they put this electrode in. So they slide the electrode in and because it can't really go 2.75 times around a spiral, it really only goes around the first turn and a half or so. So that's one aspect of cochlear implants that's sort of, um, when we think like pros and cons, a con is that we don't get that full frequency resolution. So imagine like if you were watching TV and rather than hearing the broad range of speech sounds coming out of your TV, we kind of had to filter it between the highest pitch sounds and sort of like the medium pitch sounds. And we lost a lot of the low frequency information. Well, low frequency information are things like music, um, Things like uh, timbre come a lot from, from the lower frequencies. So people with cochlear implants historically have a lower or a decreased appreciation of music and a decreased um, perception of things like timbre and tone and things like that. That is also one thing that's getting better. And um, as children are implanted earlier, I mean, I have plenty of kiddos on my caseload who love music. So that's not like really the hard and fast rule anymore, but that is a long time understanding. Um, and that's just because that electrode can't wrap around the entire cochlea and represent all of the hair cells as well. It can only represent a few. So can they, okay. Go ahead. I'm, no, go ahead. I'm just wondering if you have a patient that had this surgery done years ago, like say when the technology was new with this, with the surgeon's skills, with the newer options, the higher tech stuff coming, could they have a new wire implanted or is it like a, you get one and that's it? That is a, such a good question. So um, cochlear implants have been around since basically the 70s is like when the first one was invented, but they've really only been popular in the United States since the mid 90s. Um, and the internal part of the cochlear implant lasts, they, they guarantee it lasts about 20 years, right? So an older adult who gets a cochlear implant, they're going to have that same internal device for life. But now that we have kiddos who, you know, were one or two years old in the 90s, well, guess what? Now it's about 20 years later. So their internal devices are reaching a point where the technology either is incompatible with the external part or it's just not working as well and there's dramatic differences. So we are seeing people um, be explanted, meaning they take out the entire internal, they put in a brand new one. Um, and because of that, people are seeing you know improved speech and language outcomes, improved um, music appreciation, um, 
so the, that's a great question, and you're you're definitely on the right track. That that's that is the change. We are seeing an improvement in those things as people get the new technology. But you know, you also risk kind of having to start over because um, I'm trying to think of a good visual for this. But like that electrode is kind of set in place, right? Once it's in by the surgeon, it's there, and your brain gets used to listening with those electrodes um, stimulating those specific parts of the auditory nerve. Then we take yeah, that but out. You moved it. Exactly. We're stimulating a different part of the auditory nerve and your brain's like, wait, that's not the same thing that I heard before. So there is sort of a relearning process, but a lot of the research that's coming out, there's um, good stuff coming from MUSC that's looking at this specifically, these like explant reimplant outcomes for people, you know, with long-term cochlear implant use. And it's really positive. So we have good news for patients who are reaching this point where they're kind of aging out of their first internal device. And sometimes that internal device fails. I mean, it happens. There are manufacturer recalls of internal devices. Sometimes if they if a patient falls in just the right way and think of kiddos here jumping on bunk beds, they fall off in just the right way and they land just on the right spot, that internal piece, if any moisture gets in, then that can cause those electrodes to not function properly anymore. And so they, they might have to get explanted and reimplanted as well. Okay. So is that surgery time as I'm assuming that that surgical time would take longer than like a regular, like the first implant? That's a good question. So the the Who first time the surgery. Sorry, is yeah, that no, an ENT? Does yes. an ENT so do this that is the, the more medical side of a cochlear implant is definitely going to fall under the otolaryngologist. Um, they perform the surgery, which used to take you know about four hours. Now is down to an hour and a half, two hours, depending on the surgeon. Um, it's a lot of the times outpatient. If they're an adult, most of the time they go home that day. Um, if they're a kiddo, usually they just stay for the night just to monitor them after the anesthesia. So. It's, it's essentially a lot more low risk than it used to be. The surgery scar is extremely small. Typically, surgeons can kind of put the scar right where the back of the ear meets the head, and then there's really no visible scar whatsoever. Um, and the person is going to uh, recover for about four weeks before we ever put the external part on the outside and turn sound on for the first time. Okay. That was going to be my next question. Okay. Wow. Okay. All right. So they have the recovery time. They make it a month. Um, what happens if they get an ear infection in that time? Sorry. I'm thinking all my kids that also get like have all the chronic ear infections. Yeah, it happens. Oh. It totally happens. Um, so keep in mind that this is this implant is going from the mastoid bone sort of down and into the cochlea through the middle ear space. So these kiddos can get ear infections. They can get I mean, sometimes they'll have tubes in their ear, and that doesn't really affect the performance of the cochlear implant at all. Um, think more like outer and middle is its own thing, and then the inner ear cochlea is its own thing. Okay. What about the um, – I have one little one that um, – oh, my gosh. What is the name? There's certain classifications of drugs that are um, – autotoxist uh, help me out here mm-hmm. you know the o- word autotoxic autotoxic yeah. yeah and will that impact the okay folks what we're talking about there's certain antibiotics even that will cause um damage to uh your hearing uh i have one little one that has unilateral hearing loss and his ent prescribed him a medication that fell in that classification and it exacerbated his hearing further but will that impact or with a cochlear implant or is that good question yeah 
That's an Go. excellent question. So once they have the cochlear implant, we can't, there's not really too much that's going to damage their hearing further. We're, they're not really hearing with those inner hair cells anymore. They're hearing with the electrode. So let me, let me jump back to that really quick. So that electrode is wrapped pretty tightly around the center of that cochlea snail shell. It's called the medialis around the middle where all of these auditory nerve fibers are located, kind of bundled up close to each other. So we want that electrode to be pretty close to that auditory nerve because the electrode, the electrical stimulation is it's not like zapping it, like the person doesn't feel any electricity, but it's basically zapping the auditory nerve in different places to simulate sound. So if those ototoxic medications, so earlier when I mentioned like the chemotherapy drugs like a cisplatin or a carboplatin, um, and then things like these antibiotics, genomycin, um, vancomycin, uh, there's also like- and then like there's like diuretics that can cause hearing loss. There's a lot of different drugs that are ototoxic. Those typically cause damage to the hair cells. So now that we're bypassing those hair cells, it's not like we're really going to damage them much further. Okay. Okay. That's okay. That that's a, that's a really good question though. Um, so that's all like the internal part. So the external part is what we call the sound processor. It's not a hearing aid. Um, there's no acoustic output. I know you've probably seen someone with a hearing aid or a kid over the hearing aid with like raging feedback where it's whistling all the time. Cochlear yes. implants don't do that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. I have one little one who thought it was, um, yeah, he liked to stim on that. So, yep. <laughs> oh, that's not a, that's not a fun stim behavior at no, all. It's no, got to be no, annoying no, for no. everybody. Yeah. It was, it was fun times, man. <laughs> but you power through. Oh, I, I love the world of EI and it's never a boring day. Okay. All right. Continue on. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. So the external part is the sound processor. There's no acoustic input. So you can hold it in your hand. You can cup it, try to make feedback. It's not going to happen. Um, and the way that it communicates with the internal part is actually a magnet um, and a coil at that sits right over the magnet site that was implanted by the surgeon. So the person essentially has a piece on the inside that attaches to the magnet on the outside. So historically, that's another consideration. So when we were talking about candidacy, um, like I'll give you an example. When I was at CHOA, we had a kiddo who had um, a condition where he was going to need constant MRIs throughout his life to monitor a growth in his brain. And so, but he also had hearing loss that was severe enough that a cochlear implant would likely be warranted. But um, when they put that implant in, you know, up until about a few years ago, they couldn't get an MRI at all because that magnet or that, those metal pieces under the skin would cause lots of problems. They'd have to really bandage the head really tightly and or, you know, make an incision and remove the magnet itself. Uh, and even if they didn't, let's say they did bandage them up, it still leaves this really large shadow on the MRI um, having the magnet in place there. So for that kiddo, we had to consider, you know, one of these big picture things for candidacy where he isn't really a candidate because those MRIs are a lot more they're a lot more significant to his general health than, you know, his hearing ability, whether it's a hearing aid or a cochlear implant, right? So you kind of have to take the bigger picture into account in situations like that. But um, now magnets have progressed in the last couple of years where typically people can have an MRI without having to remove it, without having to have their head wrapped. It'll still cause that shadow. But let's say you're just getting an MRI of your stomach or your arm or your neck. You're not going to run into the problems that people would have before where it caused, you know, severe pain or something like that. Um, so that's how the external part communicates with the internal part. And the external part really kind of looks like a hearing aid. It's a little bit bigger. Um, but the sound processor, I mean, from, for all intents and purposes, looks a lot like a hearing aid. And it honestly functions other than the way that it um, communicates the signal rather than doing, you know, sound traveling out of an ear mold or sound traveling out of the receiver. It's traveling through the skin, through that magnet. 
on all, in all other ways, it's pretty similar. It's got noise reduction technology. It's typically rechargeable. It has direct to Bluetooth capabilities. So you can stream your phone calls and your music directly from your phone to your processor. Um, my, I'm sorry. My stepdad has that. My stepdad has a, um, a BTE that does that. But if he is near my mom's car and like, say I call my mom, like it will go for some reason, it will go to his hearing aid, but like for like reception, but like my, it's, they have somehow literally crossed their wires. And I'm like, Poppy, maybe you should go get that checked out. He's like, no, 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 no. We're fine. And I'm like, you need to go back to the audiologist. You should not be able to hear it in your ear and mom be talking in her car. Like that is a problem, but like. There, there is a fix for that. But that is a super common problem. We call that the battle, the car battles the hearing aids and they like battle it out to see who has the more dominant like bluetooth ability and one of them wins and sometimes it leads to situations like that yeah it's made for some interesting parent phone calls but like yeah (laughs) but that's so cool i didn't know that it would oh that is i didn't know that that was an option for a cochlear implant so that's very exciting Yeah. And the programming process for a cochlear implant is different from a hearing aid. So some of this is just going to sound like it's just a terminology change, but there is a lot going on under the surface that's different. So a hearing aid, when we make changes to how that sounds, we would just call that programming. Um, Whereas cochlear implant changes are called mappings and the program someone uses is a map. Um, So when we first turn the device on, there's tissue, there's all kinds of stuff around the electrode. Um, And so when we first turn it on, we usually start pretty soft just to give them some stimulation that's you know going to be different from the way they've been hearing. If they're an older adult, the way they've been hearing their entire life. If they're a young child, new stimulation that they've never experienced in any way before sound for the first time. Um, and what happens is over the first couple of weeks, first few months, um, that tissue starts to kind of move out of the way. The, co- the electrode becomes a little bit more um, efficient, and then we can provide more sound, a little bit more stimulation and sound clarity starts to improve. Um, And so, yeah, so at first we have some things we can do that are a little bit more objective where we can just kind of look at the electrode function because uh, a 75-year-old woman can say, this sounds awful. That sounds like Mickey Mouse. And I can sort of make some mapping changes to improve that. But a one-year-old can't tell me much about anything at all if it's the first thing they've ever heard. So we have to rely really closely on our auditory verbal therapist to give us that feedback on what kind of behaviors they're showing, how are they improving, what sounds are they missing out on, um, and then that way that can inform how we you know, improve our mapping. So, is an, so an AVT therapist, is that only an SLP or can an audiologist have that certification? That is going to typically be a speech language pathologist. There are some people who are dual, like AUD SLP, but it's an SLP that goes through a special, like specialized training process to become an auditory verbal therapist. Okay. Um, a, a dear friend from a lifetime ago, um, she was a student at USC way before Eugenie, and she just got her certification, I think, in it. And that's really, really cool because she'd been working on it for years. Mm-hmm. Um, y'all, it's... For the lack of a better phrase, it reminds me, um, if anybody's working towards their BCSS, their board certification specialty in swallowing, it's kind of that strenuous. Uh, and, and kudos to those of you that do it. Thank you for being there for us. Because those like myself that didn't know what a Baha was versus a BTE, much <laughs> less a cross, whoa, I am grateful for you. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And it's such a, it's such a partnership. Every, like anywhere you go that has a cochlear implant team that works with kids, they've got to have AVTs that are a part of that team too, because it's just impossible to you know have any kind of progress with the kiddo unless we know what's happening in the speech world. Because our you know that's why these two fields are so closely related is because like 
communication relies, if you're going to have spoken language, you've got to be able to hear the sound. Um, and whatever you're hearing is what you're going to produce too. So we got to make sure they're hearing well so they can have good speech production too. Okay. So how, I, I honestly don't know, do we do cochlear implant um, here in the city? Do we actually do the surgery for those or is that primarily done down at MUSC in South Carolina? Yep. We do the surgeries here. There's basically three CI centers in South Carolina. There's one in Greenville, one in Columbia, and one in Charleston at MUSC. So it's not as common. So for folks that are listening that may have an ENT um, and an audiologist at their office, they, that particular otolaryngologist themselves may not be doing the surgery. It could be a, a larger facility. Exactly. And, and not necessarily a larger facility, but some ENTs, special, some ENTs specialize, you know, in swallowing or airway or, mm-hmm. you know, nasal issues, whereas this is a kind of um, ENT who would specialize in cochlear implant surgery. I am so relieved to hear you say that, folks. How many times have we said when you hear the strider and you know it's laryngomalacia and you get them to an ENT and they're like, they're fine, they'll outgrow it. They may not be specializing in airway dysphagia management. So there it is, out of the mouth of the audiologist. Ah, Dakota, you won all of the brownie points, sir. <laughs> okay. All right. So we have we have 10 minutes left and I and we still have like a couple of questions to get, like we have definitely one more question to get to, but like you mentioned the programming and how it it's ongoing. So especially for the pediatrics, how frequently do they go in for, I guess the technical term you said was mapping? Yes, how exactly. do they exactly. go in for that? Yes. So it depends on the center. Different centers have different protocols for that. So our center, we have the activation day, and then they come actually once a week for four weeks. So we're making these gradual adjustments, giving them more and more sound each week. We're monitoring their progress. Is and this then like we, an hour-long appointment or like a yeah, two-hour? Yeah, about, about an hour long. Exactly, okay. yeah. Okay. And we're when they're a kiddo, we're just looking for behavior changes. We'll maybe try to play some kind of condition play game or a visual reinforcement game where we provide stimulation and look for a reaction because we want to make sure they're getting stimulated so that when they're they're hearing something, because some, some kiddos will give you all the signs in the world that they're hearing. Others won't show you anything at all. So you kind of have to play this game to try to find how much stimulation is appropriate. We do have those objective things that shows us that their nerve is firing, that they're getting stimulation. But ideally, we have a behavioral measure that can confirm that. Um, when they're older, we kind of make those changes over time. We're gradually giving more stimulation. We will then wait about a month and bring them back. We're having them monitor their progress. We're checking in on specific speech sounds. Um, we use something called the Ling Six sounds, which are ah, ooh, e, m, s, and sh. And we look for detection, wait, discrimination. Do those again, do this again but slowly, because I was replicating them in my head. Ah, ooh, e, m, s, mm. sh. Okay. Right now I'm with you. Okay, cool. Yeah. So we'll use something like that to monitor, you know, uh, you know, speech detection, speech discrimination. We'll slowly work on those auditory skills. Um, we might check them in the sound booth to see if their detection, you know, thresholds are at an appropriate level. Um, and we'll just be monitoring that. Then we'll wait another couple of months and bring them back. Um, and then we wait about three months and bring them back. And at that point, we're at about the six-month mark, and they're sort of graduated. Um, now, for kiddos, they're going to be an ongoing oral rehabilitation or, or auditory verbal therapy that entire time because they have to be building those language skills as fast and concurrently with their auditory skills as possible. We want to we want to close that gap as soon as we can. Whereas older adults, they're to- typically postlingually deafened, meaning they already have language and their hearing loss came later. So we're not really focusing on building language skills. 
skills with them. We're really just building auditory skills. But for a lot of them, language skills come into that too. There's a lot that they've missed. A lot of adults wait a really, really, really long time before they act on their hearing loss. And so for that reason, um, they might have experienced something called auditory deprivation, where their brain hasn't experienced any auditory stimulation in a really long time. And it sort of started to use that you know, real estate for other sensations. So we have to retrain the brain slowly over time to be able to, to discriminate different speech sounds, to understand words, you know, we're building up from phonemes to words, to sentences, to discourse. Um, and so it's a slow process called oral rehabilitation. Um, but that that progress is that process is sort of ongoing after that six month mark. And then at that point, we might see them every six months. We definitely at least see them once a year because the brain is always changing. And so the amount of stimulation they need to really be hearing, you know, crisp, clear sound, we need to be checking in on that at least once a year. And there's small changes that we make to their mapping that improves their hearing, you know, every year. I mean, what about our patients that have seizure disorders? That's a good question. So like auditory related seizure disorders? Well, I'm, I'm just thinking I've had, uh, I mean, I've got one little guy on my caseload who has hearing loss, but, um, it's, it's a, con- it's a conductive, it's not a sensory neural hearing loss, but he did not appear to have any seizure like activity. But now that he's coming up on five, we just found out that he'd been having absent seizures. We're kind of wondering if there was a change in baseline to begin with, uh, because his absent seizures gave rise to several other types, and he just got a diagnosis of um, Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, which is a very atypical presentation. Like normally, he would normally with that course of action, like he would have had infantile spasms and then survived it, and then it would evolve into Lennox-Gastaut. But like there was no sign or symptom, and then bam. And I'm just kind of wondering: can seizure activity? damage or impede the Oh, I see, I see what you're saying. I see what you're implant. saying. Yeah. Um, in my experience, I haven't seen that be like a major factor in terms of impacting like auditory performance, like after a seizure episode yeah. affecting brain. But, but I, I guess it's possible, but I, I personally haven't seen that happen before. But that, I think okay. that's a really good question because I can see how those are related. Yes. I, I, okay. What, um, my caseload tends to be some of, um, the least of these, for lack of a better phrase. I get sure. kids with multiple etiologies, the incredibly medically fragile. So um, I'm always thinking about all of the different possible ramifications. Totally. Okay. All right. So we have we have five minutes, but um, I want to go over what are the newest features and technologies for a cochlear implant, if we could, yeah. sir. So we sort of touched on that a little bit. Like rech- They're rechargeable for the most part. What they can connect the Bluetooth. Like? What's that? Sorry. What does the charger look like? I mean, is it cool? Like the little circle things that you can put your phone on now and it charges? Like, do they have that for cochlear implants? Yes. Yes. So there's like different. Yes. Yes. There's different kind of sound processors. So there's one that's sort of on the ear that looks like a BTE hearing aid with the wire that goes up and the magnet that attaches. But there's another type that's called off the ear processors that look almost like a really small, probably the size of an Oreo. And those just attach directly at the magnet site, like a little circle right there. And those are more discreet. Um, and those, there's one company that offers one that you just rest it on its little stand and it starts charging. Typically though, if that one, someone has the, the on the ear processor, um, that one's going to have a rechargeable battery that kind of clips off and then clips onto a charger, but they come with a charger that connects to like your car charger, connects to your computer and the USB. So you can swap your batteries while you're at work. And then when you're leaving for the day, swap off to a new battery or whatever. So and the batteries typically last about all day at least. And then the patient would charge it overnight. 
Okay, that was that was going to be my next thought. Okay, mm-hmm. and, and you said it, they could have Bluetooth on it. Mm-hmm. Yep, directly to your iPhone. If you want to listen to music, it's just playing right in your ear. I had a patient. She's she was um, she's about sixteen. She's ne- I just met her, uh, and she had never really worn her device consistently for like more than a week and then gave up on it. And so to her, the sound quality has always been terrible. She wears a hearing aid on the other ear. She loves her hearing aid, but her implants always sounded bad. And it's because she's never stuck to wearing it, like I said. So um, with this new, so now the hearing aid companies, some hearing aid companies are partnering with cochlear implant companies. Um, And so someone who has a hearing aid in one ear and a cochlear implant in the other is what we would call a bimodal listener, two modalities of listening. And because these hearing aid companies are partnering with these cochlear implant companies, we get these binaural listening effects if they have the same brand that works together. So let's say you want to stream from your phone. It doesn't just stream to one device. It'll stream to both. And then when you're out in a crowded place, the microphone of the hearing aid and the cochlear implant can work together to try to improve your signal to noise ratio. Um, and that's coming from those partnership things. So for her, now that we've got her a hearing aid and her cochlear implant, we got her an upgrade to the newer one that work together that can stream. She's much happier with her device. She's much more prone to wear it because she can listen to you know music when she's in the car with her parents and not have to deal with any Anybody, you know, not have to listen to anybody else around her. And it's really improved her wear time. That is amazing. Oh, that's so cool. Also, why do I feel like she's such a sassy 16 year old? Oh, my gosh. You have no idea. <laughs> well, I was a 16 year old. I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for the day when the boys find the old photo albums or the yearbooks in high school with mom and her punk rock phase with like, oh no. like blue hair. And I'm going to have. All I can hear is Lucy saying, you have slaving to do. You have slaving to oh, do. Oh, that's too good. Yeah, that's, that's going to go over great. Okay. All right. Okay. So um, before before we pop off to go to questions, I need to know, can you wash your hair with a cochlear implant in? Like what happens? Like, what, I love what is, this question. I actually, I literally got a call two days ago from a patient. She's an elderly woman. And she said, am I allowed to go get a permanent? And I said, that is the first time anyone has ever asked me that because I've usually worked with kids. So I was like, no child has ever asked if they can get a perm with their cochlear implant. That's a good question. Um, So in those early stages after the surgery, the skin can be delicate. It can be, you know, there's risk of infection. So we like to avoid any kind of anything like that. But after about that four week healing period, nothing really is going to cause a problem with that external part. Now we don't want them to wear their external sound processor when they're, you know, hairspray or dyeing or a haircut because we don't want anything to get clipped or sprayed because you can think of a, a sound processor or even a hearing aid with similar like water resistance to your cell phone. Like you can splash on it, you can go in the rain, but like, do you really want to dunk your phone in the pool? No. And so the same thing goes for a cochlear implant sound processor. So we don't want to get hairspray on it. We don't want to get hair dye on it, but the, the implant, the surgery site or the magnet site, those are going to be fine regardless. Um, I do have some patients that wear a braid. And so we do need to have good retention at the magnet site. Like it's just a magnet. It's not super strong. So if you've got a braid running right over top of that magnet site, there are you know, their external coil won't really sit there and attach well because there's, you know, a half an inch of hair between the two. So we have to consider that. But when it comes to anything else, as long as you're not wearing your processor when you're heading to the hair salon, there's not going to be a problem. Okay. I just, I see, I wondered this, this is, this is a vain middle age pandemic question, but it's pertinent. (laughs) It's very pertinent. That's a good question. Yes. Okay. All right. So because this is such a very large topic and I'm sure we have so much more that we need to cover um, and that other people out there have more questions. um, How can someone reach you if they want to like throw a question at you? 
Yes. And I, I hope you will. I really hope you'll reach out if you have any questions because I'm so happy to answer them. Um, I just, I love talking about this stuff if that wasn't obvious enough. So <laughs> people can reach me at my email, which is ds, like Dakota Sharp, ds24 at mailbox.sc.edu. That is my email. So they can reach me there um, with any questions and I would be happy to answer those for them. Perfect. Thank you. All right. Hold on one second and I'm going to switch you over to questions. Okay. Sounds good. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Bye.